Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hi, everybody. It's Doc from the John Freaking Pod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. Don't be content in your life just to do no wrong. Be prepared every day to try and do some good. Nicholas Winton. For me, it was what's called Little Bear. It's down at the southern tip of Colorado. And it was actually the, the second peak that I did. And, um, you know, some of these mountains are quite technical. In Colorado, we have a climbing scale of um, like class one to class five, I think is the highest. Maybe there's a class six. I think it's class five, but um, the hardest like standard route for 14ers is like a class four. And that means that you're going to be doing like rock climbing. You're going to be going up like sheer rock faces using your hands 
um, and, you know, having to scale some really technical things. And on this mountain in particular, it involved um, like the deadly three, which are extreme exposure, um, a class four climbing route, and then very loose rock. Um, and it also includes like a little funnel where you're climbing up that if any loose rock comes down on top of you, you know, it, it's gonna, it's gonna go right for you. So, um, it was pretty intimidating and also having a greater surface area than normal with a giant box on your back was, um, a little bit more, <laughs> uh, nerve wracking, I would say. I'm Doc and this is the John Freaking Mirpod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place, for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Welcome back to another episode of the John Freaking Muir Pod. Before we get too far down the trail today, I want to give a shout out to one of our former guests, author Keith Foskett. I had Fozzie on the pod back in May in episode 21, where he spent some time talking about his PCT memoir, The Last Englishman. His latest novel, Balancing on Blue, is now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. It has been shortlisted for Outdoor Book of the Year by The Great Outdoors Magazine, and I would like to take just a quick moment and read a sketch of the book that I borrowed from the inside cover. Keith Foskett's dream of escape started with a single step. When the long-distance hiker chose to backpack all 2,100 miles of the Appalachian Trail, he left ordinary life behind for five months. And during an incredible test of physical and psychological strength, Foskett was pushed to his limits. Shortlisted for the Great Outdoors Magazine's Outdoor Book of the Year, Foskett's novel-like tale is as entertaining as it is insightful. Venture beyond the journal entry style of most outdoor books and join the humorous hike of a lifetime. Balancing on Blue is a superb standalone travel memoir. If you like living outside the box, escaping into the wild, and journeying deep into the unknown, then you'll love Keith Foskett's Courageous Trek. Discover how the wilderness escape can change you too. All right, there you go. Make sure you get yourself a copy. Well, it's been quite a year with everything going on in the world. We've had raging fires, hurricanes, social unrest, and of course, a worldwide pandemic that has crept into and impacted just about every facet of our lives. And how do we respond? Well, some of us started a podcast to stay connected to the things we love. And some of us got off of our tails and went out and did something about it. The last part of that statement describes this week's guest on the pod, Brittany Woodrum. 
Welcome to the pod, Brittany. Thank you so much, Doc. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. <laughs> we go strictly by trail names here on the pod. So uh, in case you didn't know, uh, what, what is your trail name? Yeah, you know, I guess it depends on which adventure you're talking about. Like on the Appalachian Trail, I went by Red. Um, and kind of on this last adventure and in normal life, I guess, um, usually I actually go by Bert instead of Brittany. So whatever feels natural to you. <laughs> what, what's the story behind Bert? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I think it was just friends kind of trying to be funny and saying my name in a weird accent. So, you know, if you take Brit and then just change it a little bit um it becomes Bert and then that nickname has since it's, it's like the nickname that just keeps giving it has become Bort and Bart and Brett and Brock I don't know you know every nice. person seems to have their unique name for me so well I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with Bert then okay sounds good all right very good now you have no idea how you came on my radar and how I reached out to you it is a uh a, a cute little tale because my wife has kind of stood in the background of this whole podcasting experience with uh, kind of looking sideways at me like, you know, what are you doing? And as I, as I have uh, had more and more guests on and, and interviews and the podcast has kind of picked up in popularity, you know, we've got uh, 38 countries across the world now, 48 States. We've hit the charts in, in quite a few of those, those areas. Uh, she's she's kind of taken a little more seriously, and she was reading something and came across your epic adventure in fundraising uh, tale and said, hey, I think you've got to talk to her. You should reach out to her. And so I'm crediting, crediting her with, with being my talent scout for this episode. Wow, amazing. Well, thank you so much for the invite. I feel honored. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we have a regular segment on the pod. It's called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. So I'm giving you a heads up that at the end of the episode, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to say, Bert, what is your Pro Tip Insight of the Week? What can you share with our listeners to make their next adventure just a little bit uh, better, more memorable, more enjoyable? All right? Awesome. Hey, I'll be thinking about that. <laughs> okay, don't be surprised. Okay. Got it. All right, let's get down to it. So... How did this all start? Tell, tell us about your experience with the outdoors, how you fell in love with the outdoors. Um, growing up, did you guys do family trips, hiking trips, camping trips, that kind of thing? What was family life yeah. like early on? Well, you know, I feel like I, I grew up kind of in the country. I grew up on like a small farm. So I've always been more comfortable outdoors than maybe indoors. My parents were always trying to, you know, get me and my brother outside. So um, definitely grew up like riding my bike, hiking, and I, I was definitely more of a tomboy as a kid too. So um, loved always going to camp in the summer. But in terms of like my family and stuff, we definitely would go out, but we wouldn't go on like long backpacking trips or anything. We did a lot of car camping or like renting of cabins. Um, but one, one thing, so I'm actually from Kentucky originally, and I'm from really close to what's called Red River Gorge, which is probably like one of Kentucky's greatest gems. It's one of the best places in the world to go rock climbing. And it's just full of so many hikes and trails, arches, little caves to explore. Um, and we also even have our own through hike in Kentucky called the Shell Toey Trace Trail, which one day I hope to do, but it goes right through that area. And um, yeah, it's just a really special place to me. But 
so yeah, I guess kind of just grew up naturally loving the outdoors, but um, I didn't really get into long distance backpacking until my mid twenties and just immediately fell in love with it. And what is the, what is the longest distance backpacking trip that you've done? Um, overall, yeah, I think it would be the Appalachian trail. So I did the Appalachian trail in 2018 Kind of did it out of season. I was a Sobo. Um, started on August 10th and finished in like mid-December. So um, definitely a cold journey, but it was a beautiful one. And um, yeah, just one of the best experiences of my entire life. August to December. Wow. And so what, yeah. was, the, what was the weather like at the end of that? <laughs> oh, it turned to be pretty icy and cold. Um, and... Yeah. Wow. You, you have no, idea. I don't know. Um, it sounds like you're a distance hiker as well, doc, or have you done, are you familiar with, um, the Appalachian trail at all? I am, I am familiar with it. I've never been there, never done it, but I, I have read a lot about it. So one of the interesting things about doing the Appalachian trail in winter is, um, that, I mean, obviously you see snow and ice, right? And so that's a huge uh, complication, but what I don't think anyone realizes is that the Appalachian Trail is famously known as the Green Tunnel because of all the rhododendrons that, like, make this thick, beautiful green tunnel, and, like, in spring, I've heard that they bloom, and it's just beautiful. Well, in winter, these things, they don't lose their leaves and all of it gets coated in ice and that weighs down because they're quite a like flimsy, almost like a willowy plant. And so that entire tunnel just collapses on itself. And it was, um, I say, you know, it was like worse than Mahusik Notch, which is like one of the most famous cruxes, I guess, of the, um, of the entire trail itself. So we had some very unique (laughs) complications and obstacles, but um, yeah, I just remember Man, I don't think I can ever look at a rhododendron the same way after doing the Appalachian Trail in winter. <laughs> nice. Hey, and we're going to come back to the, your AT trip in, in, a, in a little bit later in the, in the episode. But um, wanted to also talk about um, other than backpacking and long distance hiking and peak bagging, what, uh, what other hobbies do you have? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very service oriented, I would say. And so I'm actually currently in grad school studying humanitarian assistance. Um, one day it's my goal to work for a humanitarian organization doing something like disaster relief or working with refugees. Um, so that's always been something very important to me, just helping others in my community, um, and all around. But in addition to that, I really actually love, um, cycling and swimming. I consider myself a triathlete. Um, and I also love studying languages. So if I'm not doing one of those things, I'm probably sat reading or studying. Yeah, <laughs> kind of boring, but that's what I love. And are you multilingual? Um, yeah, yeah. So how many, can, how many languages? Uh, solidly, like fluently, I would say three, but I could probably get around in about five or six languages. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. Now you're doing your grad school at which college, which university? Uh, University of Denver. Okay. All right. And you did your undergrad, I believe at University of Kentucky. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Nice. All right. So let's get to uh, how, how my wife came across your story and it was about raising money for COVID relief. Yeah. 
specifically like disaster relief and vulnerable populations and refugees in the midst of this pandemic. Um, so basically this past summer, what I did was I climbed all 58 of Colorado's 14ers, so mountains above 14,000 feet, and I did it for an organization called Shelterbox. So Shelterbox is an international disaster relief organization. They focus on providing shelter and all the basic necessities to individuals who have lost everything as a result of either natural disaster or conflict or war. Um, and they actually provide all these things in this like iconic turquoise box and um, kind of central to their mission, central to their identity, to their name, right, is this box. And so um, I've been an ambassador for Shelterbox now for a little over a year. And uh, when I joined, I quickly learned that many of the other ambassadors have taken on some fun physical challenges with this box. Um, because it is quite iconic. And so when I joined, I was like, oh, it's not such so much a question of if I'll do a, a challenge, but what it will be and when. And honestly, you know, this was like last September, whenever I became an ambassador, I was in the midst of grad school. I was like, I'm never, I'm not going to have time anytime soon. And um, then COVID hit and all of a sudden uh, it seemed like one, just like being a service oriented individual I was like, there's got to be something that I can do that can make a big positive impact while making a, a minimal negative impact on like local communities. Um, but that can also raise awareness about this, this growing need. Because one thing I quickly noticed whenever COVID, you know, started to rear its ugly head was that um, the only news we were getting was about almost like COVID in within the US. And just because we're in the midst of this pandemic does not mean that disasters have just stopped overnight. Um, they just, if they show up on our radars at all, it's like a, a blip, right? And um, some of these individuals who have lost everything, they truly are some of the most vulnerable populations around the world. Um, vulnerable to any disease, but especially to COVID living in, um, like in communities with fragile healthcare systems, you know, where they don't have shelter, they're being asked to shelter in place and you don't have a place to do so, or where you're living in a refugee camp very close to other individuals having to share basic necessities. It's, um, you know, very dangerous and they're at much higher risk than um, the many other populations around the world. So that was kind of how the idea got started. And I was sitting there in my apartment in Denver, kind of looking out at the mountains. And I was like, you know, it seems fitting that I should go out and find some physical mountains to climb as we as an international global community are kind of coming together to overcome this very metaphorical and abstract issue that is this, this disease, right? Mm -hmm. So as the, as the world is shutting down in March, uh, I am sitting here in uh, Southern California thinking, okay, I've got to stock up on some toilet paper. I got to get some more Fig Newtons. Yeah, maybe start a podcast. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And you are thinking, how can I help some of our, our more fragile populations in the world? That, that's just, that's incredible. Yeah, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I, I think probably for a lot of service oriented, a lot of people in general, it's like, I feel like I get my purpose and my fulfillment in life from helping others. And so at that time, we we're, we we're being told like, how you help others is by staying put and staying inside. And I completely respected that idea. Um, but at the same time, I was just thinking there's got to be something that I can do 
responsibly and safely. And so I started toying with this idea and thinking of how I could do it um, safely and responsibly. Yeah. So tell me how you came up with the idea of climbing all 58 of the 14ers in Colorado and how that, how that's going to raise money. Um, well, so <laughs> how did I think of it? Well, I mean, I guess just being in Colorado in general, one of the first thing I had, I don't think I've even heard of 14ers before I moved to Colorado. Um, but it's a big thing here and people are very proud, um, of their mount, like Coloradans and everyone across the state is just very proud. Quick, of quick question, quick question, Bert, how many, how many 14ers in Kentucky? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> okay. Just, just making that point. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure East Mississippi if it gets up that high. But um, so, yeah, there's uh, 58 in Colorado. And, um, you know, everyone has a story about them. Like many people make this their life goal to do, to climb all of the 14ers. It's very rare to hear of someone doing them in a, in a year. Um, and so whenever I first came up with this idea and kind of mentioned it to some other ambassadors into the Shelterbox team, they were like, wow, that's an amazing, but do you like, do you know what you're getting yourself into? That's a pretty ambitious goal. And um, people were like, maybe you should break it up over two years or something. But I was just like, I know, like if I'm out there hiking every single day, I'm used to just like embracing the trudge being a through hiker. Like I know if like a lot of the battle is just mental. If I can just convince myself to go and put one step in front of the other each and every day, I'm going to get there. And really, what else do I have to do right now? So it kind of became my sole responsibility, like my job, being out there climbing every day. Um, but yeah, how did I think of it? And how did it like kind of turn into a fundraiser? Well, I don't know. I think it, it just lent itself to like a natural fundraiser because um, – I, I came up with the, the um, goal of raising $82,000 because that's what the, the um, kind of mountain total added up to. So my goal was to raise $1,400 like in line with the idea of 14ers per mountain. And so that, if you round it up, adds up to $82,000. Um, and honestly, how much money I raised wasn't that important to me. I really just wanted to be out there raising awareness and doing something. Like if I raised $5,000, I thought I, I would be so proud of that because this project came together so quickly. Like I had the idea in April and I was hiking in July. Um, so we had very little time to actually promote the project before I was hiking. Um, so I wasn't like super um, worried about how much money I raised. I knew I would raise some and I was just happy that whatever I raised would go to Shelterbox and to their mission and to vulnerable populations around the world to help, especially now during COVID. Um, but one of the things that was really nice about this project, like I said, color, people in Colorado are very proud of their mountains, was that I offered a special like fundraising package. So while any donation was um, helpful and I welcomed any donation, you know, um, it was all for a great cause. If an individual or a group wished to donate $1,400, they would actually become, they could become like a mountain sponsor or a mountain hero is what I was calling it. And they would get special rights to a mountain of their choice. And basically what that meant was I would take something special to the top of that peak, be it like a banner or some kind of type of like keepsake or token 
you know, weight permitting <laughs> was like, I'm not going right. to take something too heavy. <laughs> and people understood that. But, um, <laughs> and take this 25 pound, take this 25 pound monument with you. Yeah. Will you take some rocks up? Like, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> so yeah. And people really bought into this and, you know, people were like kind of competitive. They're like, Oh, I want to get this mountain. And it was like, um, by the, by like, halfway through the project, it, it felt kind of like a race where people were like, we got to get this mountain before someone else does and before she climbs it and stuff. So it was really cool. Um, and another thing that really helped was, um, so I, I, I focused a lot on um, like local rotary clubs across Colorado. So Shelterbox itself was actually born out of a rotary club in England. And so it's a relatively new disaster relief organization. Um, but over the past two decades, you know, it's grown and, and um, it still has an incredible partnership with Rotary. And so that was kind of like my target audience for sure. And Rotary, all kinds of Rotary clubs, not only in Colorado, but across the U.S. really bought into it. And they were my primary sponsors. And I, I have immense and endless gratitude to um, Rotary International for all the support that they gave me. So was it just a, like a groundswell of support? It started kind of small and really picked up? How, how, did that, yeah. uh, how did that look? It definitely snowballed. It was kind of like a little, like I got one, one club to sponsor and then I got another and then it was like media outlets started picking up. And then I don't know when it was, but it was like my schedule was packed to the point that it was really hard to juggle the mountain climbing with the um, like presentations I was giving, because I, I think that was one thing a lot of people didn't realize was a lot of my time was spent giving presentations about what I was doing and the importance of supporting like disaster relief and shelter box at this time in particular. Um, and like, there were some times that I gave presentations on the side of a mountain, because one of the things that also helped was due to COVID, everyone moved their meetings to virtual platforms and to Zoom. And surprisingly, at 14,000 feet, you usually have pretty good service. So I gave a couple of presentations like on the peak of mountains, which people went crazy about. It was so fun. Um, but yeah, so. That must be something that. unique to Colorado. Do they have cell towers on the top of their 14ers? <laughs> no, but I mean... <laughs> I you get up above tree line and it's not on every mountain granted, but um, generally speaking, you would have service at the top. So you say some people make it a lifetime goal to get to all 58 peaks, all 58, 14, 14ers. Uh, you did it in 78 days. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so how do you coordinate the, the travel and the talks and just all the logistics surrounding getting from, you know, the base of one mountain to the next. Yeah, that was by far the hardest part. You know, people ask like, oh, which one was harder, the AT or doing this project? And I was like, I think just due to the logistics itself, this project had so many unique obstacles. It's like you get on the Appalachian Trail and you're just like, where's the next blaze? You know, you're just walking. But this one, oh my gosh, I had to change my plan almost daily. It felt like it, it was kind of laughable because everyone wanted me to make an itinerary just to kind of see like where I would be. 
And, you know, being a hiker, you can um, relate, like, there's no way you can know where you're going to be in, in three days, or even tomorrow, half the time. And so I was like, okay, I'll create something that is logical in terms of like the geography. And I had a whole plan, but that went out the window on day two. So um, I did try to follow it. And I did go um, what was geographically logical. Um, but there were so many times that I got turned around because of weather. Um, you know, we like in July and August, you have a lot of thunderstorms. It's like monsoon season in Colorado, what they call. So you can always expect thunderstorms in the afternoon. Um, so you want to be very careful about that, but sometimes they can come in earlier. So if you get stormed out, you know, you don't want to be on a peak, you get turned around. Um, we also had a lot of fires this summer. So the smoke um, turned me around a couple of times where I thought I was going to be in one corner of Colorado and was like, nope, I got to go somewhere else. And then we had a huge snowstorm in like the second week of uh, September. So that, uh, I think there were like 11 days that I could not hike because the mountains were just under snow. Um, and by the end of the project, I did try to like, you know, I grouped them all together and um, tried to go logically, but like, uh, by the end of it, I think I had one mountain left in every single range. And that was just annoying because it, it was a, the project involved a lot of driving. Um, and even sometimes, you know, you would be climbing mountains in the same range and you would get to the peak and you would look over and there's the mountain that you're going to climb tomorrow. But the trailhead is on the other side of the range. So you have to drive like three hours to get over there or something. So, um yeah, that was uh, just planning that in and of itself was kind of a headache sometimes. Um, figuring out where I could camp was always a uh, just a struggle. Um, fortunately, a lot of people offered me their yards, um, or if they heard that I was coming through, you know, they'd want to offer me a shower to feed me and things. Um, but yeah, how did I like plan presentations on top of that? Fortunately, Shelterbox gave me a lot of support in um, that department. So I have a, um, there are other Shelterbox ambassadors across Colorado. They countless, count on countless occasions, they jumped in and helped me if I didn't have service or if I was going to be climbing on a day. But also I, I just tried to schedule my presentations on what I called like my one day off during the week. So. Now you said different ranges. So for our folks that aren't uh, too familiar with Colorado, I think they would say, well, isn't it all the same range? Isn't it the, the Rocky Mountain range? So what do you mean by, by different ranges? Yeah, I, I guess kind of it is. But um, you have different like blocks of mountains and different corners. Um, and they all kind of have their own reputations too and their own style. Like the mountains will be vastly different in these different sections. And um, I mean, the mountains kind of go right down the middle of Colorado, I guess. But yeah, you have different families, I would say, within that, that grouping. Okay. All right. And can you take us through a typical, I don't want to talk about the easiest or the most difficult quite yet, but just a, a typical uh, 14er. What would your day look like on, on that, uh, that hike? How long would it yeah. take? When would you start? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the good thing about this project was that most of these hikes were just day hikes. Um, and as I said, I was hiking in like hiking season kind of um, uh, lines up with monsoon season. So you always want to get an early start. 
so that you're not on the peak whenever the thunderstorm rolls in. So every morning I would wake up and get hiking at least by four o'clock, I would say four or five, be hiking. Um, I would say the average distance. Now, if starting, if you're starting at 4 a.m. Yeah. hiking, that means you're, you are camping out near the trailhead somewhere. Oh, at the trailhead. Always at the trailhead. At the, okay. Yeah, I would, you know, and with this project, I wanted to be very conscientious of like limiting my exposure and um, kind of the burden I was putting on community. So like I was never staying in a hotel or anything like that. And I had all of my food with me and I can tell you a little bit more about like all the food prep I did throughout June, but yeah, just, um, I, I was very self-sustainable needless to say. So yeah. Our listeners always want to hear about food prep and, and gear choice as well. Awesome. Are you, are you a cowboy camper or you do tent or tarp or what, what's your kit look like? Oh gosh, I'll do any and all. I did a little bit of cowboy camping this summer, which was very fun. Um, I also slept a lot in my car because we would get some, you know, thunderstorms and, um, also if you're like rolling out so early, it's not always super convenient if you can just sleep in your car. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I have a, like a, um, hiking pole tent, um, that I love very much, but you want, yeah. to, throw out, you want to throw out the name of the brand? Gosh, I'm scared. I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> I think it's called three river company, three river, three river. Yeah. Three river. Okay. Five right. river. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Okay. Sleeping, a, sleep, uh, a, a hiking pole tent. Got it. Yes, it, it's wonderful. Um, but on the AT, I was all hammock. So um, also a big hammocker. Nice. But yeah, okay. So starting with a, a nice alpine start, 4 or 5 a.m. I think the average distance for climbing these 14ers is probably about, um, I would say like 9 to 10 miles in a day. Um, maybe, maybe a little less, maybe like eight, eight or nine miles. Um, so not a huge amount, but you have to imagine half of that is like straight up oftentimes. And sometimes one mile can take you over an hour. So, um, it's not exactly proportional to what your average pace might be. Uh, so then just hiking, usually making it to the peak by, um, I would say nine, 10, 11, anywhere in there. And then turning around and wanting to be under and in tree line, definitely by 11 and 12. Yeah. Got it. Getting far around lunchtime. Yeah. And are you, do you know all 58 uh, peaks by name? I, yeah, I do. Do you really? Wow. I, I could actually a friend of mine who um, has also done all of them. We, we always test each other like, okay, name all of them in this range. Like stupid little trivia things. All right. So which was the easiest peak to bag? Oh, um, probably Mount Sherman. It's a very short one. Um, and just a few, you know, switchbacks. I think, I think Mount Sherman was probably the easiest, but I wouldn't recommend it for someone's like first 14 er cause it's not that pretty and fun. It's kind of a, just like loose rock climb, but, um, it's, uh, it's a short and easy one for sure. Okay. And the most difficult peak. Um, I would say 
everyone debates this, right? But um, for me, it was what's called Little Bear. It's down at the southern tip of Colorado. And it was actually the, the second peak that I did. And, um, you know, some of these mountains are quite technical. In Colorado, we have a climbing scale of um, like class one to class five, I think is the highest. Maybe there's a class six. I think it's class five. But um, the hardest like standard route for 14ers is like a class four. And that means that you're going to be doing like rock climbing. You're going to be going up like sheer rock faces using your hands um, and, you know, having to scale some really technical things. And on this mountain in particular, it involved um, like the deadly three, which are extreme exposure um, a class four climbing route, and then very loose rock. Um, and it also includes like a little funnel where you're climbing up that if any loose rock comes down on top of you, you know, it, it's gonna, it's gonna go right for you. So um, it was pretty intimidating. And also having a greater surface area than normal with a giant box on your back was um, a little bit more <laughs> uh, nerve wracking, I would say. Well, that's a good point. I mean, did, did you have to do, did you have to rope up and do any kind of technical climbing to in our, in any one of these 58? I, I mean, there are people who will rope up for some of these. I did not rope up on any of them. Um, and there are also several mountains that you can do like two in a day, or even there's some, you can do four or 14ers in a day. And that includes traversing and famously like going from one peak to another there are like four great traverses between 14ers and on all of those um there's some pretty extreme exposure and a lot of people will actually use some rock climbing gear um i did two of the great traverses and i i did not use any type of extra gear we did bring a rope at one point where we actually like hoisted the box up. So I had a friend go with me on that day and it was just one of like, there was like a crag or something that I had to get through that I physically couldn't get through with the box. So, um, but yeah, never roped into the, the wall. Okay. Wow. Do you wear a helmet? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And did you do most of the hikes solo or with a friend? Uh, almost all of them I did with a partner actually. So that was incredible. Um, I think I only had to do about seven alone and I went out thinking I would do most of these alone because I was like, who am I going to convince to come out and hike up a 14 or with me? But, um, surprisingly so many of my friends from like different chapters of my life heard about the project and wanted to join me. I had several friends from the Appalachian trail actually, who came out and joined, friends from school, uh, also just strangers I met on the mountain who met me and they were like, we want to come out and join. Like they were just so impassioned by the project or people who read about it online or in the paper and messaged me. So that was by far probably my favorite aspect of this entire project was just the community that rallied behind it and how it, it seemed to touch, gosh, people from all kinds of different backgrounds and, and places. So Super. Yeah, the, the hiking community, the climbing community, it's amazing what a what a just a tight knit tight knit and positive group are out there. So yeah, on the on on the traverses, what uh, how many peaks did you climb in a day? What was the most number of of peaks that you climbed? Uh the most in a day was 4. Okay. Yeah. And was that for both of the traverses that you did? 
No, actually, that one's kind of a easier one, I would say. It's, it's, um, these four peaks are very close together. And most people, if they're going to do them, they do them all together. It's called the Decalibron. So it's the mountains of Democrat, Cameron, Lincoln, and Ross. And they're all just really close. So everyone kind of knocks them out together. Got yeah. it. It's not Got nearly it. as impressive as one of the other traverses, I would say. Yeah. Now, any scary moments on any of the 58 ascents? Let me think. Well, I would say that that mountain that I mentioned earlier, climbing that rock face was very nerve wracking. Um, other scary moments, you know, we did get that big snowstorm in, um, in September. And we, a friend and I went out and tried to bag a couple peaks probably too soon. And, um, you know, we're climbing up this gully and we were post holing up to our waist. And I remember being kind of nervous about that. Um, one, we were freezing and wet and, you know, that was the first time that I had ever been climbing a mountain and physically been unable to do it. And I was so, scared in that moment that I wouldn't be able to finish the project um, because I think I still had like five peaks left at that point um, and just seeing how thick and deep the snow was and how soft it still was um, and also just you know whenever you're post holing in this like loose rock you don't know where your ankle and your leg is going to land and that was just a really scary experience but we made it out safely and waited a little bit longer and the um the Colorado sun came back out and melted most of it. So I got pretty lucky with that. Okay. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're, continue, we're going to continue on with uh, a little bit more talk about the 58 peaks. And then also we're going to get to some of the other hikes that you've done across the, across the country and across the world. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. This is best-selling indie author Keith Foskett, and if I'm not enjoying the great outdoors, I'm listening to the John Freaky New York podcast. And we are back talking to Bert about her fundraising effort for COVID relief across the across the world. It wasn't just domestic, right? You're talking international aid. Yep, that's right. Got it. And so her uh, climbing 58 of the um, 14ers in Colorado. So you kind of touched on this a little bit uh, right before break, but was there ever a time where you thought, uh, I'm not going to finish this? I, I have spoken this out into the world. I've published this. There are people counting on me, people watching me, people knowing that I'm doing this, and there's no way I'm going to finish this. What do I do now? <laughs> I think maybe there were two moments. One before I had even started because everyone was kind of coming at me and I, I had a huge amount of like imposter syndrome coming in with this project because here I am a Kentuckian. Like I'd lived in Colorado for a year, but did I, had I ever climbed a 14 er No. Um, and I was just like super, super nervous because of what everyone was saying and just thinking maybe I can't even do this. Um, but then also, yeah, whenever we had that huge snowstorm, gosh, 
September was such a wild card and it, it generally is in Colorado. You could get a huge snowstorm early on and then it never melts. And that's what we had, but fortunately it did melt. And, um, but there was a moment there like 11 days where I could not hike straight. And, uh, I was really, really scared that I would not finish this year. Did you have any naysayers in your life as you took on this, this project? Anybody uh, close to you saying, Bert, what are you thinking? This is, there's no way you're, you're crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I had a couple, I I can think of one in particular, but maybe I shouldn't get into that story. (laughs) Yeah. Are are you sure Um, you don't want to get into that story? Oh gosh. It's a, it's a horrible story. I think everyone will just hate this person by the end of it. Oh, okay. Um, but um, I, I kind of touched on that mountain earlier, right? Uh, the one that was really scary, Little Bear. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing that with, um, well, a guy who I had been dating earlier this year, and then we broke up. And um, he had said he would come out and climb some of these mountains with me. And um he ended up abandoning me, abandoning me on that mountain. And I knew he wasn't like a fan of the project from the get go. And uh, that just made that experience all the worse. And, um, you know, I got back to camp and we were supposed to do another mountain that day and he was packing up and was going to leave. And I was like, well, where are you going? He was like, no, we're going to go like, this isn't worth it. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to stay here and climb this other mountain that we said we were going to. So I turned around and started to climb the mountain. And like 20 minutes later, he just walked right past me and didn't even say hello. (laughs) But um, so he didn't go out on any other hikes with me. But I think he also was very against the project from the beginning and didn't really understand what the the greater overall cause was. Well, sometimes these types of trips, these times, these types of uh, adventures can can help sort things out. with relationships. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. You know, you see people do through hikes all the time with their significant other and it's a make or break kind of situation. You really learn um, someone's true colors out in the wild, I think. Yeah. There's no, there's no hiding anything out in, in the wild when you're with someone 24 uh, seven doing this, this kind of activity, it, it all shows. So. Yeah. So anyway. All right, we'll move on. We'll move on from that. Mostly, though, it was all positivity. I heard very little negativity, to be honest, once the project got started and people, because I had this itinerary, right? And I had included so much buffer time between many of my hikes because people were saying, oh, you're, you're going to want a lot of rest time. You're going to need like buffer time for um, bad weather days and things. And I was killing it in the first month. I think I was like a week and a half ahead of schedule by the first month. And so after that very few people had any doubt that I would finish it. Um, and people were just so excited. I received endless amounts of positivity. So that was just really cool. Fantastic. So you, you climbed peak number 58 on, is that 78 days after you started this whole adventure, you climbed peak number 58. It's the last one. Uh, take, take us through the, the, the experience of getting that last one knocked off, what the feelings you were experiencing and what you did afterwards. How did, how did this all finish up? Yeah. So I think it's important to note, well, one, this final peak was that same peak I got turned around on in the snowstorm. Um, so that this was like the one that I had, physically just been unable to do because of the snow and it was it 
I was really nervous about this one. Well, it wasn't even one. It's like sister peaks. So there were two peaks. They're called Crestone Peak and Crestone Needle. And so they're also two of like the harder, like I think it's their class three. If you do the traverse between them, it's like class four, potentially five. Um, and um, I think I just put them up on a pedestal because I had been turned around on them and just failed to climb them. And I was a little bit nervous. And so generally whenever people do these two mountains, they do them together. And um, so I did Crestone Peak on a Monday and I went out there and I was just totally exhausted because I had been cramming mountains in all weekend, had very long hikes and I was just drained. I thought this was going to be my last day though. I was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to get Crestone Needle, I'm going to get Crestone Peak. Um, and I was alone too, but I was like, I've just, I've got to get these done. You know, it wasn't a good attitude um, to be in. And, um, I was moving very slow, taking tons and tons of breaks. And I got to the base of Crestone Peak and I looked up at the mountain and I was like, I, I can't do it. Like, I'm just so tired. Um, I hadn't slept well the night before. And like I said, I'd had very long days, um, like all, all three days prior. And so, Somehow, though, I, I took a break. You know, I think that's always a good, maybe this is my pro tip. Anytime you're feeling like you can't keep going, just take a break. Eat something. Take a nap if you need to. Um, and, you know, I, I got some energy. I looked up and I knew, like, if I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, I would get to the top. I had all day to do this. No weather was coming in. And I'm already here. Like, why turn around now and do this again? So I made it to the top of Crestone Peak that Monday and I'm looking over at Crestone Needle and I hadn't seen anyone that entire day, which was very rare. I almost always saw at least one person out hiking. And I was just like, mm, you know, I, I don't want this to be my last day, like where I'm feeling so low. I'm out here alone. What am I going to get to like Crestone Needle, my final peak and take a selfie at the top and then be like, okay, I finished. Like that would be the most anticlimactic ending to what was one of the most amazing summers and projects of my life. So I went down Crestone Peak and I took like a week off and waited until many of uh, my friends and many of the people who had come out and hiked with me throughout the project could join me the following Saturday. And so we all got a cabin down um, near the mountain. And then the next day on the following Saturday, we all went out and hiked together we did a nice alpine start. We had perfect weather. I was with some of my closest friends and it just felt there was nothing scary or odd about it. It was like a routine day. We went up, we made it to the top and um, it, it was just amazing. It was the most wonderful feeling. And I felt so much gratitude to everyone who had come out and supported me throughout this entire project. Um, yeah, I was the one hiking, but this was definitely a team effort by so many people working behind the scenes. Um, like I kind of mentioned earlier, to help with the logistics, to um, throw me some trail magic, um, and to even physically come out and hike with me at times. And so just an immense amount of gratitude, but then also an immense amount of relief um, that I had actually completed what I set out to do. Because even though I had a lot of doubt going in, um, there were also a lot of like variables. Um, so like I said, you know, the weather could have turned bad. 
a lot earlier or it stayed bad for a lot longer than it did. Something could have happened to my car or something could have happened to me where I like hurt myself or broke an ankle or something. And then the project would have essentially been over. So I was just so relieved and so thankful that things went in my favor um, because they could have very easily not have. Yeah. We've talked to a lot of folks on the pod, uh, adventure athletes, endurance athletes, and uh, on, you know, feats like this, all it takes is one little piece of bad luck that can totally interrupt, you know, the entire thing and keep you from finishing. And uh, it, it takes, there, there's a lot that has to go right for, for something like this to all come together and for you to finish. And I know there's a danger in thanking people on the air uh, because there's, you, you, you might, might leave somebody out, but uh, do you, do you want to thank anybody at, at, at this point and throw a shout out to folks or, or no? Oh gosh. Okay. So I will first and foremost, give a shout out to what I call my family. These are people who came out for at least um, five or more hikes with me. So huge, huge shout out to 127. That's his trail name. He hiked a lot on the AT. He hiked on some of the worst chapters of the AT with me and came out for a whopping 16 mountains this summer. So huge thank you to 127. Um, huge thank you to Ian um, Atkinson, who works actually for Gossamer Gear. Just happened to work or meet him on the mountainside, and he came and joined me for nine or ten mountains, I think. So we met this summer, and he was a great ally. Um, thank you to Zeltson. She is one of my closest friends as well from the Appalachian Trail. She is a triple crowner, the first Mexican to actually ever complete the triple crown, and she's currently working on creating her own through hike through Mexico. Um, and so I was so happy to have her out for more than 10 mountains and she was just an absolute joy. Um, huge thank you to Chase Har, who was another crazy Kentuckian who I met on the mountain who climbed all 58 14ers this summer too. Um, granted, we jokingly say he did it for personal glory versus for charity, but um he definitely has a heart of gold and uh, oh my gosh, his extreme amount of positivity and patience got me up several mountains this summer. And um, I hope that he will join me on my next adventure with the green box. Um, gosh, other names, you know, Sabrina, Sarah, um, Philip, pickle juice, Philip. Um, gosh, so many people who came out and hiked Dav, um, yeah, it was just absolutely amazing. But there are also some people who um, who really made this project special on the ground. And I would say um, a huge thank you to the Frickham family. So this was a family who heard about my project. They live in Leadville, Colorado. And they um, said, you know, we don't know that we can help your project like financially, but we will definitely offer you our home whenever you come through our town. So this town just happens to be very centrally located around all the 14er, not all of them, but many of the 14ers. And um, they offered me their home and they quickly became like my second family. Um, they came out and hiked on a couple 14ers with me. And um, they're actually the reason that I decided to move to Leadville post project, which is where I reside now. So, um, and then also, I mean, a huge, huge thank you to the Shelterbox team and um, to all of the other Shelterbox Colorado ambassadors for helping me immensely throughout this project. Very good. 
Very good. Hope you didn't leave anybody out. That was fantastic. Oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah, I probably did <laughs> to everyone else. <laughs> now, what was the publicity on this uh, like? I, I know that this story was picked up by CNN, the Good News Network, other media outlets. Uh, what, what kind of fame and notoriety did you did you acquire during this whole this whole thing? Yeah, so I think this was one um, one department as well that Shelterbox really helped me. So they already had a lot of connections with um, international newswires and things. Uh, and so we early on kind of created a press release and sent it out. Um, granted, initially it didn't get too much traction, but we did start to get a lot of local, uh, local newspapers uh, and radio stations kind of reaching out. Um, and once it Guy like got picked up by some of these bigger known news stations and newspapers. I think that's where it really started to gain traction. Um, and now, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's I, I can't believe um, I'm I'm hearing that the story was being posted in by places and with people that I didn't even talk to. Like I got a, a picture from a friend in Switzerland who said that I was in the newspaper there and they sent like an article that was all written in German. And I was like, this is wild. Like <laughs> how did they hear about this? And like, why do they care about this? Um, just absolutely insane. Um, and you well, know, Colorado, they, Colorado's they're proud of their 14ers. I think Switzerland is also proud of uh, some, some, some mountains they have. over there. <laughs> it's, about to say. it's like, maybe I'll go there next. <laughs> um, that's right. But um, yeah, it, it, it hasn't stopped. And um, that's, that's just been absolutely incredible that even though I'm not still climbing, I can still be very like this project is still very much alive um, and a part of my daily life. So that's been really nice. And so what, what continues in terms of uh, are you getting calls, emails, are, are, press, are, are news outlets, media outlets still, still contacting you, you know, right now? Yeah, so I'm still getting a lot of news outlets. Um, I actually just had an interview with the Washington Post yesterday. And next week, I'm going to be in a documentary, which is wild. So I, I have to go to like a film studio in Denver. Someone is doing a documentary about people who have taken, who like upon COVID kind of took it and change it into a positive. So I'm going to be featured on that, which again, is just mind boggling because I did not think this would, it, I, I would have been so happy if I just raised $5,000. So the fact that it's gained like international attention is, um, I'm almost like <laughs> overwhelmed. And I, I'm not a person who likes being in the limelight necessarily. I like going out and being in nature and like hiding from society for months at a time. So um, it's been kind of crazy. But yeah, so still getting emails, still getting um, uh, like requests from the press and things um, and still giving presentations, actually. So that's been pretty fun. And, and also just kind of working on the next project, thinking of um, maybe where I'll take that box next and um, doing a little bit of research and, you know, like proper planning for the next for the next project. Map it all, map, map it all out day by day, hour by hour. And it's going to come off just exactly. like that. Yeah. No, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am, I'm honored that you were able to take time out of your busy day and respond to my random social media DM uh, and get back to me and, and agree to do the podcast. 
No, this is such a cool idea. And I didn't realize that you had just started this. Like, this is a brilliant idea. And I hope that, yeah, that um, you're, I, I'd love to hear from your audience or and know what feedback you've gotten or how, how did you even think to start a, a podcast? And was it a, a result of COVID? Well, I was actually stuck in traffic, in LA traffic, uh, one afternoon uh, in January, and I was thinking about the trail and, you know, how far away I was from the trail and how I could get closer. And um, my son, actually, who I've gone on many hikes with, uh, he and his buddies actually started a podcast talking about, you know, sports topics. And just a random thought hit me as I'm stuck in traffic and thought, you know what, why don't I combine the two? Why don't I combine hiking and podcasting and uh, get a chance to spend some more of my free time lost in this topic. So that's, that's how it all came about. Awesome. Cool. Well, I think it's such a great way to stay in touch. Yeah. You know, it, we learn so many important and wonderful lessons on the trail uh, and it's sometimes hard to keep those alive. And so I think this is a great way to exercise that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So has this coverage, has this whole experience changed your, your, uh, your life direction at all? I wouldn't say necessarily because I mean, ultimately my goal is to work for an organization like Shelterbox. Fundraising is a huge component of what Shelterbox does. They wouldn't be able to do what they do without the funds. Um, but one day I would like to be like a person on the ground um, deployed in these disaster uh, zones or conflict zones um, and actually helping and hopefully seeing beneficiaries. Um, but I guess in terms of has it changed anything at all? You know, I didn't necessarily think I would do another project with the box, but um, seeing how successful this one was has inspired me to do some other similar fundraiser, um, maybe not as a reflection of COVID, but just to keep taking that box to new heights and um, seeing where it goes and how I can continue to support Shelterbox and their mission. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Shelterbox comes up to you tomorrow and says, "Hey Bert, we're going to uh, we're going to send you to a country and 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 get you get your boots on the ground. Which country do you think do you hope that they send you to? Oh, where, I would. Where would, you, where would you like to go? No, it does. It doesn't matter. It's like wherever there's a need. Um, you know, I, I, I consider myself to be a student of the world. And I think also if you're getting into this type of work, you can't be too partial towards any corner of the world. It's, it's really just about service and wanting to help people. That being said, um, so before starting my master's, I was fortunate to do a variety of fellowships. So for the past five years, I've kind of been, um, hopping from NGO to NGO and fellowship to fellowship. And I was actually working primarily in Southeast Asia. And for um, over about a year, I was in Myanmar, actually, from June of 2016 um, to June of 2017. And if you know anything about Myanmar, you might know that it is currently home to one of the largest humanitarian crises on the planet with the expulsion and genocide of the Rohingya. Um, and so I think if there is a, a specific crisis that is very dear to my heart, it's that one. Um, but I would be willing and happy to go anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. Okay. And I know you said that you were multilingual and could, 
could uh, make your way through in, in several different languages. Any of them uh, Asian languages? Yep. So Burmese is one of them, the, the language of Myanmar. Um, and then Mandarin is the other in Chinese. Yeah. Wow. And what I is... I, but very little. <laughs> <laughs> More than me. Um, what, is, what is your master's in? What's your master's program about? Yeah, international Studies and Humanitarian Assistance. Okay. So you've got everything pointed in the right direction. You've got it dialed in. Yeah. And yeah. How, mu how much longer do you have in the program? Well, uh, it should just be one year. So I'm taking this year off. Actually, I was supposed to be back in Myanmar right now doing um, a language study grant and working for a nonprofit there. Um, but, you know, COVID happened. So that's been postponed, but I'm hoping maybe sometime in the new year, I'll be able to get back and do a little bit more language study and maybe work with some populations on the ground. Okay. Hey, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Appalachian Trail, uh, your trip from 2018. And then I also understand you did the Camino de Santiago. That's so right. I want, I want to hear a little bit about that and also about your next adventure. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Hey y'all, it's Brittany Woodrum and I just completed climbing all 58 of Colorado's 14ers and you're listening to the John Frickin' Muir Pod. Thanks so much for listening. And welcome back. So Bert, I want to talk about uh, the year 2018. For some reason, I think that that might have been a, a busy year for you with uh, some, some different hiking adventures. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, well, in 2018, I, I actually started out the year in Spain. I was living with a friend out there. And um, after a month, I was like, you know, I think, um, I think I'm going to go and hike the Camino. Uh, so it had 2018 was an interesting year because it was very much a transition year. I was like, all right, I need to go back to the U.S. I've been hopping around a lot from, you know, country to country. I'm ready to start focusing on building like a, a meaningful future. But before I do that, there are some bucket list items that I would like to knock out. And the first one was hiking the Appalachian Trail. But big problem, I had never done any like long distance hiking or serious backpacking. And I just happened to be in Spain. I actually, um, one of my uh, undergraduate degrees is in Spanish. And so um, I already had studied in Spain. I, I knew different corners of Spain, but I didn't know like the northern part of Spain. I'd heard about the Camino and I knew several friends who had done it and it had been a life-changing experience. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll do this and I'll use it as like an opportunity to also see what I, or see how I feel about like distance hiking. Um, so there are several different routes you can do on the Camino. I ended up doing um, El Norte to Oviedo, which is a city. Um, and then from Oviedo, I took El Primitivo down to Santiago. And one of the reasons I did this was um, I had heard it was one of the most beautiful routes, but I'd also heard it was one of the most challenging routes. So I was really looking for an opportunity to kind of um, push the limits of my experience and really get just to see, like, do I like this? Can I go up and down hills with weight on my back? Um, and 
uh, ended up loving it, had one of the most incredible experiences of my life. I, I also did this one out of season. It seems to be a, a theme. <laughs> I did it in like February and March. Um, but yeah, I just met some of the most incredible people and truly, wow, like if you're considering doing the Camino, I could not recommend the Northern Route, the Northern Route more because you just get like these giant blindingly green hills on one side, like dotted with sheep. And then on the other side, like this beautiful blue ocean, you know, you get to hike on the beach sometimes and gosh, the food is, you know, everyone talks about the food and the wine of the Camino and it's true. It's like, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. That was going to be my question is how, how did the Camino differ from the AT? I mean, I, yeah. know you, there, I know there's some walking involved and you're, you're carrying some weight, but I think there's some, some pretty significant differences between the two. Definitely. I think one of the things I loved about the Camino was the cultural aspect. Um, and not just from being in a different country, like you're meeting people from all over the world. Uh, and that was, I mean, you do get that a little bit, I think on long trails in the U S um, and maybe if I would do one of those long trails in the U S in season, I would meet more people from, you know, around the world. But um, in my experience, at least on the AT, I didn't meet too many people um, from outside the U S and plus I already, I am from Appalachia too. So I felt like I, I was kind of more in my comfort zone there. Mm-hmm. Um, another cool thing though, I think about the Camino is going through the different like provinces. They all have kind of their own culture and um, their own brand of cuisine and um, I don't know, just unique, unique traditions and things. So that was just so cool, especially having studied Spanish, um, I knew a lot of the other corners of Spain, but I didn't know anything about the North and it was just awesome. So cool. Um, so and then, yeah, you, you didn't have to carry, you know, 30 pounds of food, right? That's another thing, right? Because so I got- you've got destinations at, at the end of each day that you, you can have a, have a, a pint in a pub, right? That's right. I, I did not carry a tent on the Camino. I did not carry any water filtration kits. So there was still a lot to, lots to be learned before um hiking the at but um yeah that was uh one thing i always joked about it was like on the at you'd go through a town every three to five days on the camino you'd go through a town three to five times a day <laughs> so <laughs> it was um but not not exactly but you know you'd pretty much go through a town every day and um have have the opportunity to get something warm in your belly and then also sleep in a bed. All right. Top, top three moments from, from the Camino. Oh, top three. So one has to be whenever um, I met my little cohort, we were a very motley crew. Um, We met in a a nunnery. So I got to stay. uh, That was another cool thing. You know, you would stay in like monasteries and nunneries. Um, so it was me and then this younger German guy, he was probably like 21 or 22. And then this like older, um, Danish guy, like in his sixties. And we were all so different, but it was just so fun because again, I was doing it out of season. So I didn't see that many people. They were some of the first people I saw and we all just hit it off immediately. Um, and I remember the next day we walked out of the nunnery and there was like bread hanging on the door of the hostel. There were like two loaves of bread. And we all had this conversation. Like the young German kid was like, oh, 
they definitely left these for us. And the Danish guy was like, no, no, no. Like, this is for the nuns. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe it's for us. Maybe it's not. <laughs> and the German, like, we came to a, a, a compromise. So the German kid took one of the loaves of bread. And then we're, like, walking away from the nunnery and looking around. And there's, like, loaves of bread hanging on all the houses. <laughs> And we're like, oh my gosh, we just stole this bread from these nuns. Like God is going to come out and smite. <laughs> so we were like waiting anytime for like the storm to roll in. But um, that cracked us up immensely. Um, gosh, another highlight had to be. Um, so once you get to Santiago, another popular thing is to continue walking till you get to the coast. It's called Finisterre, like the end of the world. Um and on the first day of that hike, I met um, a gentleman who is still in my life to this day. He's one of my closest friends. And it was, you know, that's one of the beauty, one of the beauties of hiking and the hiking community in general. It's like you can meet someone for five minutes and then they could be in your life forever. And um, this boy and I, we ended up hiking for three days and he became one of my closest friends. And I think you know, we, we walked to the end of the world together and watched the sunset. And um, it, I don't know, it was just such a beautiful, beautiful ending to such a great journey. Um, I don't know. That's epic. Sounds epic. Was Did we get three? Was that top three? I guess, like, do, you, do you want another? Did I talk too long? I, I, I think that was just two. I, I think we need one more. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Um, there is this. So, on the Camino, you stay in what are called albergues, and these are run by hospitaleros, so they're like the um, uh, the hosts. And there are some legendary hosts on the Camino. And there's this one guy in Guemes, and oh my gosh, his hostel, it, it is huge. And these things are so cheap. Like, you can stay in these for like 10, U- 10, 10 pesos, or 10 pesos, sorry, 10 euros or something. Um, and 10, some, 10 something. Yeah. Something, not U.S. dollars. Um, and gosh, this guy is so cool. He is an adventurer himself. He like on his property has this like museum of all of his adventures. And he did many of them in like this old Land Rover that's like in the middle of the museum. And then there's like all these photos where he drove it from Spain to the tip of Africa and then got a ferry to South America. And like, I don't know, he's just lived like 10,000 lives in one. And um, I just remember having a really special, special time there and meeting some other individuals who ended up hosting me later down the the journey. But yeah, that was just a, a beautiful night. Awesome. So Bert, do you like to read books about hiking? Yeah, I do. So I, ta- I started off this episode talking about uh, Fozzie's latest book, uh, but he also wrote a book about his time on the Camino, and it's called The Journey in Between. And so a lot of what you're – I read that after I had him on the, on the show, and a lot of what you're saying uh, sounds like it's straight out of his book, and just the stories and, and the stays with people and the, the, the scenery and the culture – um, so if, if you need a good read about the Camino, if you want to relive it a little bit, uh, the journey in between by Keith Foskett is an excellent choice. Okay. I'll definitely check it out. Thank okay. you. Let's transition to the AT. Um, you know, I had, I, I know that you hiked it. Was it August to December, right? Also yep. in 2018. 
So yes. it, it takes about uh, four, it took about four months for you. Is that right? That's right. Like okay. four, four and some change. <laughs> yeah. So I talked to Hunter Leininger, um, who was an adventure racer who was on uh, Amazon Prime's The the World's Toughest Race about Eco Challenge Fiji. Okay. And I don't know if you've heard of that or seen it, but a 400 mile race where they're doing, you know, hiking, canoeing, uh, outrigger, biking, all kinds of uh, different things. 400 miles and they, they shut out, they closed down the finish line after 12 days. So you have to do it before 12 days. And mm. He, uh, he said on the show that his next adventure, he said on the podcast that his next adventure is he wants to set the FKT on the Appalachian Trail. Wow. He lives in, uh, well, I'm going to get this wrong. It's Georgia, Boulder. I believe. I think it's Georgia. <laughs> and he wants to, he, the current FKT is 41 days. And so yeah. he wants to do it in 40, day, 40 days. And I think it was actually set while I was out there or it was set like just before. Yeah. Okay. That's a crazy, that was a crazy story. Cause I think like the FKT was set and then like a two days later, someone beat it or something. <sighs> it was just, that's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, it would be. It would yeah. be very hard. <laughs> you had it for, for two days. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I, tell us about, got- tell us about your trip. And I, and I want to hear more about 127. You mentioned 127 in your thank yous. <laughs> And I think it's a, it's a great trail name and I'm, I'm intrigued as to how he came by that trail name and how you two came across each other on the AT. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 127 and I, I guess we're just two of the crazy Sobos who decided to not only go South, but go South (laughs) toward winter. And, um, you know, on the AT, you have these like registries and things in the shelters. And so people can like sign them. And um, if you're behind someone, you, you're kind of like stalking them for a little while. So that's how I felt with when I was like hunting him. It was like, all right, um, I can tell he was here like a few days ago. I'm getting closer. And it, this, this, is the, this is the, a- the AT's version of social media. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you have nothing else to enjoy at night. So you're just like reading through the registry book. Um, And I was following him for probably like three months and I could tell it was like gaining. And um, it was in, oh, maybe late October or early, or it must've been early November. Um, I finally caught him and his two um, companions. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, you're 127. Um, You know, like walked into a, a hostel that we were all staying in. And, um, yeah, from that day on, we all started hiking together and formed a little tramily and I'm still very close with that entire cohort, but, um, how he got his name. Yeah. 127 is kind of a mouthful. (laughs) Um, but so up in Maine, Maine is kind of, well, New England in general, but Maine especially is famous for its bogs. And especially in Maine, you have all of these like bog bridges. And I'm probably going to butcher this story, but I, I've been told it many a time. So I think he was hiking in the 100-mile wilderness. This was early on. <laughs> he was hiking, and I guess he wasn't paying attention when he was walking across the bog bridges because his leg got stuck in between two of the bridges. I, it, like these bog bridges were I, – I can understand this because they were um, – it was almost like a cartoon – 
you know, where you're like running across a bridge and then one is accidentally an alligator, or like it like dunks you in or something like you think it's going to be safe. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of the bog. Um, so I think he got his, his leg like stuck in between <laughs> two of the bog bridges. And um, he, he literally got stuck there for probably a good like 30 minutes and he was like this is ridiculous like someone's gonna come across across me and I look like this total idiot who is like this newbie out on the trail and just got stuck in between (laughs) two bridges and I think he um, someone related the story whenever he told it later. He, he, he did get out. He ended up being able to like wiggle himself out. Um, but he was there for quite a while. And whenever he showed up to camp that night, someone was like, oh, you're like um, that guy from 127 hours. Like you would have had to cut your leg off or something. And so they all started calling him 127. Got it. Um, yeah. So long story. That makes <laughs> he sense. Did and one. <laughs> Did not lose a limb. And I guess 127 is, is a bit better of a nickname than Wiggle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great, but I guess 127 is just catchier. Yeah. All right. So you caught up to 127 and his, and his buddies. And um, how'd the rest of the trip go? Um, it went well. You know, we, we had the, I say well, but it was like probably the hardest part of it all. We had um, the icy snowstorm um, to kind of navigate. And, uh, I actually ended up getting a stress fracture, um, because of the ice and had to take a little break from the trail. Um, but one of the greatest benefits of going South on the AT is, um, if you time it right, you can be in hot Springs, North Carolina for what is called trash giving. So we all went to trash giving together Um, which is basically where all this hiker trash shows up and celebrates Thanksgiving together. And um, that was really, really fun. Trash giving. Nice. (laughs) That's the way to do it. (laughs) All right. Top three spots on the AT top three moments. Um, uh, Let's think. So, Oh gosh so many moments um it's a long trail you know i think coming out of the 100 mile wilderness and getting to shaw's was a very special moment for me because i had a really rough time in the 100 mile wilderness um and i i really thought i was going to quit but then i got to shaw's and i talked to so many hikers who were just about to finish like lots of nobos and they were just so encouraging and so positive um and it just really shifted my perspective and kind of um, set my priorities, um, straight. And I was like, this is definitely where I want to be. And I want to, I'm in three or four months, I'm going to feel like these people, you know? So that was a really special moment. Um, gosh, I think meeting that entire crew of like 127 shield maiden chicken and, um, double blaze. That was kind of our little group there was really special because, Whenever October rolled around, um, I had I had met a boy like up in Maine and he became my hiking partner and we did about 800 miles, but he was a flip flopper. So he actually got off at Harper's Ferry and I was alone kind of for the second half. And I was hiking alone like throughout October and I was just like, I guess I'm the only person out here. So running into this other group who was going at my pace, who, you know, I just jived well with was such like a breath of fresh air. It was, it was very much needed at that chapter 
in the hike. Um, so I think meeting them in that moment and just every day after it was really, really special. Um, and then, hmm, the final moment might be where I met, um, so her name is Zeltsin, but I, I believe her trail name was Ketzel. And that's the, um, uh, so she was the girl who came out and hiked with me this summer as well. She's the triple crowner, first Mexican to complete the triple crown. Um, and this was a really special moment because we just happened to meet on the top of a mountain in the, in Maine on the Bigelows actually. And it was so cool because, um, I got to the top and she, I asked her, I was like, Hey, where are you from? And she's like, Oh, I'm from Mexico. I was like, Oh, no way. I, I, I lived in Mexico for a year. And so we got to talking in Spanish and I was like, this is so amazing. You know, I did the Camino earlier this year. And, um, one of the things I felt like so disappointed about is that I haven't had the opportunity to kind of, um, have too many cross-cultural exchanges and she she was about to finish her trail and she's like yeah me neither like this is the first time I've gotten to speak Spanish on this entire trail and she'd been out there for like three months and so we're at the top of this mountain and then this other guy comes up um and he's from Colombia and he starts speaking Spanish to us we're like what are the chances that three people on the top of this random mountain in, in um in Maine would like you know, all be from like kind of Hispanic backgrounds. And then this entire family walked up and they were all from Spain and they lived in Oviedo, which was one of the towns that I passed through on the Camino. And so we're like this, it's like the most cultural mountain <laughs> in, yeah. the US. Like, in, in Maine. And it wasn't even one that you could drive up or anything. This was like a hard mountain to kind of hike up. It's like, mm -hmm. here we all are just from different corners of the world speaking Spanish. And um, as we were walking away, the family shouted out to us like Buen Camino, which is what everyone says to pilgrims on the Camino. And it was just like a really beautiful moment and even more beautiful because um, Zeltson and I, you know, that was a perfect example of a, a time where I met someone for like five minutes and we ended up staying in each other's life um, long after. So, yeah. Such a great story. That's awesome. Any desire, Bert, to uh, become a triple crowner yourself? A huge desire to do it. The question is when, but yeah, I would love to be a triple crowner. Nice. And what, through all these adventures, through uh, through the Camino, through the AT through the 58 uh, 14ers, what have you learned about yourself? Oh, I think, um, I think the amount of just mental fortitude and how important like tenacity and grit plays in achieving your goals. Um, you know, and just no matter how hard something may seem or impossible with little steps and a little effort over time, you, you will get there. I think that's one of the coolest things about climbing mountains and about this, this project this, this past summer was um, in terms of goal setting, there is truly nothing more rewarding than maybe climbing a mountain because um, nowadays it feels like so many of the, the challenges that we face are like these abstract problems that are very hard to to measure or to know if you're making progress with them, right? Um, or it's, sometimes it's hard to even know where to begin to start to solve that challenge. But you look at a mountain and it's very, very clear. It's like, there's the peak, that's where I'm going. And with a, like, 
if you just keep taking, like you said, embrace the suck, embrace the trudge. If you just keep taking one step in front of the other, you know you're eventually going to get there. And it's really easy to kind of measure your progress. And then once you get to the top, you have this overwhelming feeling of success and accomplishment. And you're just able to um, kind of really assess, assess that. And all of the pain you felt climbing up just immediately washes away and you're overwhelmed by this um, uh, intoxicating feeling of um, just joy and gratitude and accomplishment, I guess. And I think that that experience, <laughs> doing it 58 times, um, is really something that is transferable to some of those other problems in our life, right? It is. It's like if you can create some type of attainable goal or measurable goal and um, be able to break it down into tiny steps and know that you're just, just make one little step every day, even if it takes five years, you're going to get there. And uh, I think that's something that doing something like a, a long trail or doing something like climbing a mountain, it really helps reiterate um, that process. That is so accurate and so well stated. Um, that's perfect. Thank you. That's, that's excellent. Thank so you. What's next for Bert? Well, I'm just going to play the hermit, I think, for the next few months. So like I said, I've moved to Leadville. It's a small little town in the mountains in Colorado. Very happy to be here. Um, I did have some other plans. So um, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I was going to go back to Myanmar um, on a grant. Unfortunately, that has been at this time postponed. However, I have a feeling it's going to get canceled. Um, and um, yeah, you know, just living life and enjoying being in one place for a while. This summer, wow, I was very transient and it was a lot of travel. So I'm very happy to just kind of have a home base for a little bit. Um, I've contemplated maybe doing the CDT this next summer. We'll see the Continental Divide Trail. Um, but what we're looking at doing next with, uh, with Shelterbox is maybe, and maybe your audience can, um, can kind of uh, tell me which one they think I should do, but either the 4Kers of New England, so the peaks about 4,000 feet. Um, so I think there's 48 in New Hampshire alone, but I'm looking at doing all of them in New England. And I believe there's 67. So maybe doing the 67 four cares or doing the, what's called the centennials of Colorado, which would be um, the top 100 tallest mountains, but I've already done the top 58. So um, it's only 42 left. Yeah. Just a few left. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Hey Bert, you know where we are? And with your, uh, what do you mean? We are at the time of the episode where I ask for the pro tip inside <laughs> of the week. Surprise. Oh my God. Have I not given enough pro tips? Oh, we just keep the pearls of wisdom dripping off your, your lips here. Okay. Here's a, here's a tip that I learned this, um, this summer that I had never heard of before. And I thought it was brilliant. So um, if you ever need like quick go-to gaiters to keep your feet dry, turkey bags um, and slow cook um, like bags work great. So, you know, keeping your feet dry is super important. Always bring extra socks on every adventure. 
Um, but if you ever encounter snow or really muddy and wet um, <laughs> locations or like a terrain, you can go to um, your local Walmart or Safeway and get yourself some turkey bags. Turkey bags. That is the first pro tip involving turkey bags. Congratulations. <laughs> Hopefully not the last. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. That's it. Episode 40 is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Bert, and I want to thank her for joining us this week. Bert, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media, and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Yeah, so um, definitely check me out on Instagram. My handle is Britons 11 that's Britons like kittens or mittens. So B-R-I-T-T-E-N-S 11. Um, you can also feel free to reach out to me on Facebook. Also, if you just look up um, Shelterbox and 14ers, you're bound to find um, our official website there as well as hopefully the Facebook page. And uh, yeah, welcome you guys to follow along and maybe even come out and join me on my next hike. Sounds like a plan. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, take just a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. Right, Bert? Yeah. <laughs> that is a wrap from the John Freakin' Muir studio. Any final thoughts, Bert? Nope. Thank you guys so much for listening. And thanks, Doc, for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't care if you're, in, if you're on your last 14er and you're exhausted. It doesn't care if you've been chasing after 127 for three months. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. <laughs> Thank you.